Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. second most powerful force in the universe. Love is the first. Only love could drive you to give yourself in a way that could make you vulnerable to being hurt, and only fear could drive you to hurt those that you love in order to protect yourself from the same vulnerability. Only fear can drive you to hurt those that you love in order to protect yourself, and only love can drive you 
to embrace him on the asset bridge. And that idea of that battle is something that we continually fight with. We're going to look tonight at a couple different things, um, and we're going to try to hit at least stick our toe in the water to a topic I've never taught on, and if I'm being honest, it's scary enough to me to come up here on this. Uh, it's scary enough to me that the Lord had to have Ashley come pray for me during the prayer retreat. This is that intimidating of a topic to me. So <clears throat> I'm going to read you some notes first. This is another one of my favorite poets and psalmists. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. It's from the great psalmist Yoda. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Tonight, we are going to try to tackle the idea of fear from several angles. However, we cannot have a discussion on the topic of fear without discussing love. One early writer said it this way, love never brings fear with it. And however walks, uh, and whoever, excuse me, whoever walks constantly in fear has not reached love's perfection. I'm going to read that quote again. Love never brings fear with it. And whoever walks constantly in fear has not reached love's perfection. The writer of this statement was the Apostle John. He says in 1 John 4, and unlike his second, he says this in 1 John 4, and unlike his second two epistles, John states that this first epistle is directed to all. So if you read John 1, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the second two epistles of John were actually directed to specific groups of people. The first epistle of John, he specifically states at the beginning of the letter, he's directing it to all people because the emphasis is so strong on the necessity for us to both understand and begin to mature through fear. Now, not I don't mean mature in fear. I mean mature evolving away from or out of fear. Everyone needs to know how central to God love is. In fact, we could say that his very name is love. God is love. So technically speaking, if you were looking for a name to describe who God is, you could just use the word love. We must understand that there are so many facets to understanding fear and its effects on us. These effects are demonstrated in many facets of our life. I firmly believe that fear leads to condemnation and ultimately to shame. I believe that in our walk, the three of the most challenging things that we're going to encounter um, are fear, whether you say fear of man, whether you just say fear as a whole, with disappointment and then condemnation. But I specifically believe that fear actually opens the door to condemnation and ultimately to shame. Why? Because fear and disappointment become really closely tied together, if you allow them to. They're almost, they almost walk hand in hand. The effects become demonstrated in many areas of our lives. And there are many other ways that fear manifests itself. Not the least of which is the systematic way that we process disappointment. I believe that fear 
fear of rejection specifically, fear of failure specifically, fear of pain, all lead to an improper processing of expectation. I'm going to read that again. I believe that the fear of rejection, fear of failure, and fear of pain all lead to an improper processing of expectation. Do you realize that when psychologists have determined um, that the, the levels of, of things we fear, I think if I remember right, there's the top 15 things that human beings fear, all human beings. You would think that like number one is physical pain or death. Those two guys didn't even make the top five. Do you realize fear of rejection is the number one fear? We're more afraid of rejection than we are physical pain. Stab me, shoot me, punch me, just don't reject me. It adds a whole different spin on why students in college have been so willing to submit themselves and subject themselves to pain in order to gain acceptance into a Greek society. note, speaking of expectations, let me just say that I believe as mature believers, we must understand the difference between disappointment and grief. This is something that God has really been dealing with me about and giving me a lot of, uh, a lot of questions and a lot of um, pulling some things in me. Grief is a healthy way to process loss of any kind. Let me say that again. Grief is a God-designed way for us to process loss of any kind. Grief can be a way that we process a desire of hope or prayer not being fulfilled in the way we imagine. It can be a way that we process the loss of a loved one, the loss of a relationship, or the loss of something that we had worked hard for. Maybe something, maybe there was a job that we worked really, really hard for, and then that thing just didn't work out. That was the expectation we had. That's that's the thing. That is the proper way because the grieving process is actually a process that resolves us and brings us back to being whole. However, what will happen is this idea done well can lead us, grief done well, the processing of, of this loss can lead us into confession if we've made a mistake, if we have erred in some way, and correction not into regret and shame. Just put it this way. If you're in regret or shame, you're not processing the mistake in the way he designed you. And if you're not processing it in the way he designed you to, it's like driving a car the wrong way down a one-way road. It's not the one-way road's fault that you're getting there and you get in an accident. We can't do that and not expect issues. The same way as when we try to process these things in that way that we absolutely were not designed. Disappointment, this is a little bit soapboxy for me, but I'm preaching to uh, a few folks. So, disappointment always revolves around expectation and imagination. I'm going to say that again. Disappointment always revolves around expectation and imagination. Always. Disappointment always revolves around expectation and imagination. I expect that someone will act in a certain way. I expect a certain result. 
it is never built, or excuse me, it is built almost entirely on imagination and illusion. So what happens is we establish the illusion or the expectation of how we want something to work, how we, what we think we can accomplish, how somebody else should react, how somebody else should treat us, how a situation should work out. And then when it doesn't work out that way, we experience disappointment because disappointment and expectations are absolutely hinged together, both of which lead us into a lifestyle of fear. Because what will happen is disappointment improperly processed come or expectations brings us into disappointment which is improperly processed and then establishes triggers and 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 roadways pathways of fear because then we put fear mechanisms in place to try to prevent ourselves from experiencing said disappointment so rather than being then carried back into imagination done right because he has designed you to be a dreamer we actually cut off fruitfulness, which is the ability to romantically dream with the father who wants to keep you into the depths of poverty. So within that romantic dance that we do with him, we actually then begin to pull back, regress, and shelter ourselves, all because of an improper processing of disappointment. Here's another really important thing to note. God is never and has never been disappointed with you. He is never been, will never be, and has never been disappointed. Let me ask you this question. I'm I'm not going to answer this question because this would be pastoral suicide. But I'm going to give you a question to think about. Are, Are mistakes bad or wrong? Do you learn more from successes or failures? So, here's a really interesting thought. Aren't, aren't, hear what I mean by this. I'm not saying that God designs you to make a mistake or fail. Did God design mistakes as part of the path and the journey to bring you to maturity? I think you have to. I think that's the dance that we're in. I think that that I think we have so absolute I think we have so absolutely in our Puritan version of who God our Father is. We have intermingled the idea of success and the idea of purity and the idea of, of uh, flawlessness and the idea of some perfect portrait of who God sees us as. We've intermingled that thing and sin. And I do believe that sin is something that separates us from God. I do not believe mistakes are because I think that most of the things that we think are sins are actually just mistakes. Here's a, this is really out there. Here's the question. Did Jesus make any mistakes? Wow. It's a Thursday night. I can say crazy things like this. So if this was a theology class, did Jesus make any mistakes? And we all know that Jesus was sinless. But did Jesus make any mistakes? And if your answer is no, then how can the scriptures say that he experienced everything we experience? 
already have had the avenue to deal with properly and overcome disappointment, loss, and failure unless you've experienced something better. Thank you, Ashley, for that. You can thank her for our first first question, by the way, because I was just going to not do it. So... This is why we can say that God, and this is really kind of a cool thing, because I've thought about this a lot before, and I've thought about, does God get disappointed with me when I don't do what's right? Whether that's like, you know, looking from the loft in the back, I can't get up there. Uh, or, um, um, you know, not praying for somebody when I'm supposed to pray for somebody. Or, uh, I don't know, you know, pick something, you know. Maybe the movie has you know, reaches the threshold of four-letter words I'm supposed to check off, and I don't, and I let it go one past that, you know, or whatever it might be. There's some side nudity in the jail addiction. I'm just going to keep going. I'm serious. These are the rules. I'm just being honest. These are the rules. And you think, well, you know, and then you go, and then all of that other stuff kicks in, and you go, well, that's, Oh, that's sin. I'm in sin. I've got this thing. I've got to repent. I've got to get this thing back online. And I'm not saying that we should be reckless with purity. I'm not in any way suggesting that. I'm just simply saying I don't think that some of the things that we think are sin are actually sin. I think they're mistakes that we need to process and deal with. But I don't actually think that there are things that actually prevent us from being what we're supposed to be on purpose. Those are the things that prevent you. And I'm sorry. But if, if flipping somebody off in traffic prevents you from being who you're supposed to be in your purpose, we need another kind of alcohol. Because that's all part of the, I'm not saying that you should do that. Let me be totally clear. I don't even know that I've ever done that. I'm just not that way. doesn't mean I've never yelled some things. I just don't use my digits when I do it. So God in those moments is not disappointed in you. Why? Here's the really cool thing that he, that he mentions here. The reason God is never disappointed in you is because God has no illusions or imaginations. He knows you completely, fully, and with unrelenting affection. He cannot be disappointed in you because there is no illusion within him as to what you are or should attain. He knows you fully and completely. You will never surprise him. He will never hold a previous failure against you. He can never be disillusioned by you because he never had an illusion about you in the first place. He will never be disappointed by your weakness because he doesn't set expectations. He only establishes desires. He will never be disappointed by your weakness because technically it is at that moment he finds himself the most available in your surrender. That's the way he works. C.S. Lewis said this, fear creates what is fear. The world we fear doing poorly on a test, the more likely we, are, we will freeze and do poorly. The more you fear rejection, the more unnaturally you will act, raising the likelihood of being rejected. But the more you love someone without concern for your own appearance, the more likely you are to be accepted. Fear faces, faces inward. Sometimes they call this navel gazing. We're just totally focused, looking inward at what you've got going on. Fear faces
facing inward. It focuses on what will happen to you if you fail the test. Love always faces outward. It focuses on caring for the other person more than you care for yourself. The more you look outward, the less you look inward. The more you love, the less you fear. We will attempt to look at what it has, excuse me, at what has been called the fear of man to start. We're actually going to look at two different things, one of them found in financial banking. First is going to be the fear of man, and the second, we're actually going to try to tackle fearing God. I've always been told I'm supposed to. I've never been, never been told what it means. And for a God in Jesus that spent so much time telling you to not fear, attempt to look at what it is what's been called the fear of man we will also attempt to look at what's been called the fear of god or it's quite likely tonight we will provide more questions than answers if this is the case i will consider it a matter of success because many times questions hold much greater value in our walk for maturity than others especially when our answers are viewed as offense to what god can do or how he works it is my opinion that the fear of man actually dislocates from a clear connection to the Father, similar to an arm or a leg that becomes dislocated and is not able to function. Fear actually dislocates us from abiding in Him in the same way that when an arm or a leg, whatever it might be, becomes dislocated from the body, the nerve, uh, the nervous system, the central nervous system can no longer command that and it respond and function the way it should, even though that doesn't, here's the key, that doesn't mean the central nervous system has stopped giving it commands. Here's the point. How many times have we gotten into this stuff and immediately we think that God has stopped speaking and rejected us because of our failure and our fear, but in reality we're just disconnected. He's still speaking. I can't feel that I'm not connected to him. I would like to suggest this to you. He has never and will never stop speaking. It is always my proximity to his voice. It is always my ability to hear. He may speak in a different way, but he's never stopped speaking. If we know that the design is that we abide in him and are fruitful, fear of man will attempt to sever that connection. What happens next is the fear of man connects us to an inferior reality that isn't true. When we play over and over in our mind what somebody else will do or say, um, where we play over and over in our mind, excuse me, what somebody else will do or say if we obey his voice. It actually connects, here's the kicker. So it doesn't just disconnect me from the belonging of the body. And let's just be really honest. I've never watched any of those zombie shows, but I do understand that uh, in the zombie shows, the arm is still like rolling, walking around, flapping or something. At least it is in uh, New Tyson Kill Bill. Um, so I assume that's the same thing uh, as the as the what is it? The Running Dead, the, the Crawling Dead. There you go. Those guys. So uh, I I understand, but the reality is, as soon as my arm becomes disconnected from my body, it ceases to be able to operate. So within that, fear's role is to separate me 
in some type of protective measure. Do you realize how many times, have you, have you ever heard anybody talk about being frozen with fear? That it liter- there is a literal um, psychological complex where you become so afraid you literally aren't able to move. Now, sometimes we say that and it, it, we're kind of maybe exaggerating or it's a little bit of hyperbole. There is actually a literal condition where this can happen. People have lost their ability. They've almost, their bodies have went into atrophy. They've lost the ability to move, to speak, or to walk. Motor functions cease due to a terrorizing event. And what fear tries to do is first start by severing us from where we're supposed to stay connected. We talked a few weeks ago, remember we talked about fruitfulness and how that our job, our only job, is to stay connected to the vine. Our job is to be fruitful and stay connected. Well, really, our, the, the way we become fruitful is stay connected to the vine. The, body, the Bible says that if we are in him, then we are to bear fruit. There isn't this thing, we don't have to think about it, we don't have to work real hard, we just have to stay connected. Isn't it interesting that the enemy's primary goal through fear is to disconnect us? Why? Because he knows as soon as you disconnect, you, you, you stop becoming fruitful. The Bible says that the way your joy is made full is through being fruitful. So do we need to walk this all the way back to depression, or do you guys get the point? He attacks us, dislocates us. As a result of that, fear comes over us, separates us from the ability to be fruitful. And as soon as we lose the ability to be fruitful, we lose the ability to be in joy because that's how we're supposed to feel fulfilled. As soon as that happens, it actually walks us back into a in, 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 and I say, I'm using the term depression, I'm more speaking of a spiritual sense, but an emotional sense as well, where we feel overwhelmed, overcome, and don't know why. It walks us back into that. I've, in, and sometimes I call it, uh, I just call it being crippled, you know, where like something happens, you make a mistake, uh, you don't go pray for the person in Starbucks, you don't buy their croissants, you know, whatever it is you're supposed to do, and for the next three days, you can pretty well forget about it. Spiritually, you might as well not get out of bed. Why? Because you're just playing that over and over in your mind, beating yourself up. There's regret. There's all kinds of shame that's associated to it. Just playing that over and over and over and over and over in your mind. Why? Because there's been a disconnect, and there was something where you're supposed to feel fulfilled in joy, where it actually severed you and separated you. It connects you to an inferior reality, though, which is the second phase of what fear begins to do. So it disconnects you from the real reality. I don't know why I said that. I don't care. Uh, but it then connects you to an inferior reality. The inferior reality is this is what they'll say and this is what they'll do if I walk up and lay hands on them in the middle of Walmart. How many times have you played out how something is going to work out before you go do it? And almost every time, it's not at all like, it, like you had played out, like the worst case scenario you had built up in your mind. Why? Because at that point, there was a, you were literally having in front of you two truths. And he's wanting to know, which tree are you going to eat from? Are you going to eat from the tree of of life or the tree of what I've said, or you're going to eat from this tree over here, which is all the imaginations and expectations of what you think is going to happen. And as soon as you eat from that tree, you have connected yourself to another reality through fear. Some people have actually tried to mimic the absence of the fear of man through their own strength or ability. 
in doing so, they become harsh, indifferent, and callous toward other people. This is always counterfeit. These people say they don't care what anybody else thinks. There are truly people who don't care what anybody else thinks. But then there's also people who are just rude, who are callous and indifferent towards how their actions will impact others. That is a counterfeit version of a lack of the fear of man. And it drives me crazy because what I want to say every time is that's not called an absence of the fear of man. That's called insecurity. I've never met somebody who wore the badge of prideful honor that said they weren't, didn't care what people said and they step on people's toes who weren't absolutely insecure to the very core of their being. And it is a compensation, in fact, many times an overcompensation of feeling unaffirmed. And what we have to do as a house is figure out how to not point out their overcompensation, but affirm it. Because perfect love casts it out. And the Bible puts equal the commandment to love God and love neighbor. Do you realize this is how messed up Jesus was? I can't imagine how like the Pharisees had to be totally freaking out. He says to them, they say, what law is most important? And he says to them, the most important law is love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And equal to that is love your neighbor as yourself. Loving our neighbor or demonstrating the 
the, the image-bearing nature of God the Father to those around us is equally import, as important to loving the Lord God. And the reality is it's not saying, it goes on to say in many other cases, it's not in any way insinuating that you can simply love your neighbor and that's good enough. What it's actually saying is here's the first thing, and it's impossible for you to do this thing and not also do this. Show me somebody who doesn't love the people around them and isn't compassionate, and I'll show you somebody who is bankrupt in the love of God on earth. It's just that simple. I really don't care how much you love God if you are callous and indifferent towards the suffering of people. And oh, by the way, as if that wasn't important enough, Jesus then goes on to say, and in all of, all of the law and all of the prophets, Everything that's been said up to this point is hanging upon and found in those two things. Let me just frame that. Do you realize that what that says is the importance of that single thing, love God and love people in the way that God loves people, is so important and stocked full of vitality when he says everything God has ever said through his written word or through a prophet is found in this and everything that's ever been done can hang on one nail. That's this. That's pretty crazy. So, I also believe that there are people that have a strong tendency towards fear of man as a negative expression of a gift that is going to be required. Done right, this gift would give that one the ability to see a problem or feel the burden of something through the eyes of that other person. People living from the fear of man are constantly thinking, this is what they'll say or do. Done right, it's a prophetic gift that will allow us to see and serve the broken places in others' lives through compassion and grace. I'm going to say that a little bit different way. So I believe that everybody deals with the fear of man. However, there are certain people that have a specific proclivity towards a fear of man or a fear of what others will think or do. If you're in the room or listening on the worldwide webinator and don't feel like you have fear of man, you're lying. Okay? It's that simple. And we all want to be accepted. Every time I walk up to a new person and meet them, in my heart, whether aware or unaware, I want to be embraced and accepted and liked by that person. Here's a crazy thought. Do you realize this is how messed up we are? We even want to be liked and accepted by the people we don't like. Even the people that get on my nerves and I don't want to be around, I still want them to like me. them to really like me and hang out with me, but I really don't like them. I want to hang out with them. We do this. And the truth of it, it's, it's the same for the same reason that we always like, we, it's the reason social media exists. To be liked and affirmed. Has anybody ever intentionally posted a picture that makes them look fat or ugly? No, every time we post a selfie, we do one of these. Why? 
because somebody 10 years ago told us that we could skinny pose. I don't know why, it just happened. But immediately now, as soon as, I promise you, if, especially if you're of the female persuasion, if a phone comes out, immediately, like when the doctor hits your knee, the leg comes out and the hand goes on. I don't know why, it just happens. It's involuntary at this point. We've evolved to where that is an involuntary reaction. It's like when somebody else around you yawns and you automatically yawn even though you weren't tired. That's what happens. Cell phone, leg kick. So when we see this, this whole process within our society, it's all based in this fear of man thing. And we all have it. We all have it. What we have to do, though, I'm not saying that we become un, uh, unconcerned. I'm not saying that we become completely callous towards the idea of wanting people to like us. That's just never going to happen. God wants us to love him. We were created in his image. The most natural thing within the demonstration of his image is for us to want other people to love us. The only difference is God isn't incapacitated when the love isn't reciprocated. So, and here's why this is so important, because I think that the hardest thing that we are going to encounter in our life is not um, how many reversals of tongues you have, is not um, how long our worship nights go, is not how long you spend in prayer, is not how many Greek words and Hebrew words you can sing, and all of that stuff is really important, and I do it all. More than, I quote Paul, more than all of you, probably. I love all that stuff, right? But the most important, or excuse me, the most difficult thing that we're going to encounter in this life is love your neighbor as yourself. Period. Loving God is easy. I'm sorry. Loving God is easy. It really is. That's not hard. Loving somebody who hates me and is unwilling to reciprocate that's the closest thing to the nature of God. Why? Because God loves unconditionally. He's never disappointed in you. He never holds back his love from you, even when you fight against him. The closest thing to the demonstration of his nature is to love the people that hate us. That's why Jesus made it a career move to contradict the Bible. Jesus contradicted the Bible. That should mess some things up for us. But he made it a career move to do so. Why? Because that's how important it is. So, some people are do have a stronger tendency or proclivity towards fear of man. I believe that that's a pathetic gift. I believe that done right, the fear of man is supposed to be an ability to feel a burden or perceive something that somebody else is encountering so as to be able to demonstrate his heart and his love towards you. Done wrong goes inward. Fear goes in, love goes out. So really quickly, I'm going to give you two scriptures and you know both of them, so we don't even need to go all the way through them. Um, Luke chapter 22, um, we're just going to hit the high points. Luke chapter 22, verse 55, this is the denial of Christ by Peter. It says, they were all sat down around the fire and a certain maid, verse 56, beheld Peter as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. 
And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, somebody else said. And he said, Man, man, I'm not. About a space of an hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying of a truth, this man is with him. And he's a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know him not. I don't know the man you're saying. Immediately the cock crowed. So we know that that Peter had this spiritual thing going on. In fact, Peter was such a reactionary and such a kind of a loudmouth. Do you realize that this is the only guy, and I love Peter, because Peter asks a lot of the questions that the rest of us who are reading the Bible are asking. So, like, you know, Peter is the guy that is, when there, you know, there's things going on, he's going, Lord, what are we supposed to do with this? You know, Lord, do you mean, you know, whatever? He would do that kind of stuff. He was also the guy that he was running off at the mouth so much on the Mount of Transfiguration that God spoke from heaven to interrupt him. How bad does your diarrhea of the mouth have to get for God to speak from heaven to interrupt you? But he sees, remember Moses and Elijah show up, Mount of Transfiguration. Peter gets the bright idea. He's moved by the Spirit. He says, okay, it's time to make some tabernacles. This is great. This event's great. While he's talking, God says, behold, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Interrupts Peter. Another time, even better time. This is actually the most famous time. Peter, while Jesus is talking, decides to correct him and tell him he's not going to go to the cross. smart person to quote Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man. However, correcting God is probably not on my list of things I want to do. So we know that there's that thing within Peter. Peter goes to follow Jesus, sees him, and uh, is put in this position. Fear of man kicks in. He shuts up. Nope, I don't know him. Nope, I don't know him. What we find is just a few chapters later, chapters later, a few books later from the book of Luke, you find that this is the same guy that in the midst of everybody being amazed and in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others were mocking. People are making fun of them in the upper room. Day of Pentecost, fire on their head. They're all talking in tongues. This is incredible. Peter's the guy that stands up in the midst of this room and starts to tell them what it is. I mean, if you if you believe that from from the um, uh, from the uh, resurrection to the ascension, there were forty days. So uh, so let's say in a period of two months, let's say you've got this guy. Bless you, Peter. You've got this guy that goes from afraid to tell strangers. Who there's not, it's not like they were soldiers. These guys went to mafia. These guys went to secret service. These were just people sitting around a fire with a shame three different times to say that he even knew Jesus. Why? Because that's the fear of man done wrong. That's what, how it manifests itself in that way. However, you have this time, and something is stirred within him, which that's what we're actually going to talk a lot about coming Sunday after the sermon, is what happens when this thing gets stirred? So the question is, what caused fear to leave him? 
According to scripture, we know that perfect love casts out fear. So my next question is what caused fear to be overcome in the Old Testament? New Testament, 1 John says perfect love casts out fear. We know that. So in the Old Testament, what did you find? In the Old Testament, you find several things, but specifically, the word of God would come and bring courage to somebody or stir their spirit to action, therefore overcoming fear. So my question is, why was fear overcome in a different way in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Or was it different? So there's something about this thing that Peter must have experienced, and I do believe that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So I'm going to say this, and then we'll be done, because this is probably one of the heavier things that I'll mention. I do believe that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Peter and stirred him to action where he got up and prophesied. He got up and took charge of a room that was gone wild. Okay? Upper room gone wild. And in this moment, what we have is Peter getting up. You've got all these people who are speaking in each other's tongues. I cannot imagine. You can't speak your own speak your own language, but you can speak the other guy's language. You've got now people are running out onto the streets, and you've got other people who are saying these guys are drunk. I love his answer to that. Verse 15, this is awesome. For these men are not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. We don't get drunk for at least another two hours. I love that. I just think that's hilarious. He doesn't say these men are drunk. We're Christians. Seriously, I would love, like Peter, one of the fathers of the church, if ever there was a moment to clarify what we're, you know, no, we don't get drunk for at least another hour and a half. I mean, I know it's five o'clock somewhere, but, you know, these guys, what happens in upper room stays in upper room. <laughs> you know, so that's, I love that thing that happens in Peter when he stirred, but what stirred him? Here's what I would like to suggest to you, and we're going to get into this a lot on Sunday. Here, but here's what I would like to suggest to you. I'd like to suggest to you this process. We all have experienced times when we were afraid. We've all experienced times where something happens in us and we are stirred to overcome it. My favorite times are actually when we are stirred miraculously, without any thought. We all know what that's like. Uh, you know, where there's times where we do things, where we go lay hands on people, where we prophesy to people, where we do whatever it is. And, and it's not because we thought about it and thought, this is a good idea. It's almost like we've come to in the middle of it. You all are looking at me like this has never happened to me before. Have you ever had something where it's almost like you don't have a choice? The spirit is comes upon you. You just feel stirred. It's like you just can't, and sometimes, now I'll be clear, sometimes I have to have taken a step or two before that feeling overcomes me, but there is those times where the Spirit just overwhelms you, where the Lord speaks to you, and that confidence just rises up, and you're like, man, we're doing this. It's like Thelma and Louise moment. You grab the hand of the Holy Spirit, and off the cliff you go. And that idea is something that's so special and so, um, so unique. But I think that the interesting thing is, that whether it's the word of the Lord that comes to you, where he speaks to you and tells you who you are, which would happen often. Remember, he told Joshua, be of good courage. Don't be afraid. Or 
if the Spirit just actually comes over you like it would do with Samson. Remember Samson, the Spirit, it said, would come upon him. He would shake himself and do great exploits. So regardless of how that happened, love casts out fear. We can agree on that. The Bible says it. We believe it. Love casts out fear. The Spirit of the Lord coming upon us or His Word coming to us to remind us what we are also casts out fear. Here's where I'm going. However, the hinge pin is that God is love. You see, in the Old Testament, the same principle was happening, only Jesus hadn't come yet to reveal to us the fullness of God's nature in action as being love. Let's take the next step. God is love. We're starting there again as we work back through this. God is love. The word or voice of God is called spirit. Right? Jesus said this. The word of God is spirit. So, spirit is not an it, but a person. God. Right? Is the spirit a thing? No. The spirit's not a thing. The spirit's not an it. The spirit is a him. Not a pronoun meaning masculine, but but a person. Okay? So, the spirit is him. So we can say that in the Old Testament, when the Word of God came to them, reminding them what He said, His voice arrives in spirit or in the person of God. As His Spirit comes upon them, who He is or love comes upon Him because He is love. In the midst of His voice coming to them, His Word, His Word contains Him. He is love And as his word comes, he comes, love comes, fear flees. It's the same God. We just didn't know it. I would actually like to suggest to you that you as a people could not possibly um, fathom the miscalculation of how powerful and potent His love is in our lives. I would like to suggest to you that every single thing we do, every form of empowerment, every piece of Him that we feel, every pain that we feel, is His love. Because it's who He is. So that's why judgment is love. In fact, I would like to also suggest to you that the reason people feel judgment as they condemn him is because they're rejecting his love, not because they're condemning him. Most of the early church fathers thought that this is what would make Paul fall, not because they were being eternally judged by God. Maybe you'll come back and realize, man, you really messed this one up, but because... They, had, they were rejecting continually, like many people believe, they would reject continually what was who? Love. And so within this, I think we have so undersold in the Puritan version of who God is, what love is. We like the spirit stuff, or I do. I love the stuff. When you come around me and I'm like really feeling it, get all tingly, hands get hot, whatever happens, you know, that stuff is awesome, but it's just a devil. That's who he is. 
so perfect love casts out fear, I would like to say this as we close. The most important thing that you can do to be further removed from fear is love better. And if you're having a hard time feeling his love, then demonstrate it. Sometimes our fear will be the kickstarter, and usually our fear is the kickstarter by our disrespect. So what he will do if we will put us in positions where we have the opportunity to showcase who he is and showcase his love and redeem that, I, I know this sounds like the, the, the tiptoeing through the tulips, ishy-gishy kind of God verse. I, I think that we just so mischaracterize that um, that we don't really know what that is. And if I can be a little honest with you, if, if being called bad means I get it right, I'm good with that. If being called bad means I don't fight fear every day for the rest of my life, then I'm take that path. And I think that God is not the warmest. His love is not the warm, fuzzy, liberal thing that we've said it is. I think his love is who he is. And I think that we walk a dangerous line in life when we put him in a box when we stop defining who he is. He is he is the nature that gave us the opportunity to be hopeless, dreamers, and misfits. He's the nature that's in us that wants to be loved even by the people that we don't think we should be. He's the nature within us that even when it gets messed up, because sometimes that ego thing can kick in, he's the nature in us that causes the desire for affirmation and acceptance. So within his love, I would venture to say, what happened? Let's just talk. What happened to Peter between denial and Pentecost? Was it denial? Well, I would suggest that it wasn't. Because actually, if you look at the timeline, Jesus breathed upon them the Holy Ghost in power as much as they walked on water. So for those, of, those, those people that suggest it's the Holy Ghost, they're just wrong. And I still think that that very often is wrong. It's not the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost has already been given to them. What was it? He saw the fullness of Jesus in them. Jesus resurrected, had the conversation with Peter. Do you what? been taking me into depth into depths of his love that I didn't know existed and I didn't know I was rejecting it. I didn't know I had an open death bed for it. I didn't know I was open, not open to it. And what I'm finding is that fear is running in fear at the absolute bayonet of his love that he's brought to all of us. And it's driving us to fear. And it's not because all of a sudden we think think about the spiritual realm and I'm able to quote a bunch of verses with a machine gun at some demonic spiritual attack on my life. It's because I think about the fear of God instead. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We do love you. We love you because you first loved us. We love you because you are love. We recognize that everything we have and everything that we 
can give and everything that we can offer is because of this. And we ask you that you would help us to have a better understanding of this. We ask you that you would write within us, correct within us the, the misconceptions and the schisms and the, 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 the tripwires that are associated to these topics. Help us to see you for who you really are and help us to see this incredible exchange for what it really is, knowing that we, even in the moments when you come mightily upon us and you're anointing and in your spirit and you stir us to action and we love those, Father, that even in those you're demonstrating your love. Even in those moments, you're casting out fear by your love because it's about us. Help us to be further and further and further motivated by fear. Help us to be those, Father, that choose love over fear every time you have us. Father, thank you that we have this word. Thank you that we have this knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray.